Editor's Introduction by James B. Jordan John Calvin preached through the book of Deuteronomy on weekdays from the 20th of March, 1555, to the 15th of July, 1556, totaling 200 sermons in all. T. H. L. Parker describes the circumstances of their delivery as follows. Quote, as senior minister in Geneva, Calvin had charge of the parish and church of St. Pierre, the former cathedral. This office entailed a considerable amount of preaching. By the Ordonances Ecclesiastiques of 1541, two Sunday services were ordered, with three weekday services. In 1549, however, these latter became a daily service, held first thing in the morning before most people had gone to work. Calvin himself preached at both the Sunday services each week and, from 1549, every weekday of alternate weeks. End quote. Parker goes on to say that it was Calvin's custom to, quote, preach on the New Testament on Sundays, although occasionally on Psalms in the afternoon, and on the Old Testament on weekdays, end quote. An examination of the Deuteronomy sermons, 15 specimens of which are included here, will reveal that Calvin seldom preached all six weekdays in his week. Others took his place from time to time, and sometimes he preached during the interim weeks, standing in for someone else. Calvin preached without notes, and thus did not write his sermons. Living in Geneva, however, was a French refugee named Denis Raguner. It was learned that he, quote, was a skillful shorthand writer, and that he was taking down Calvin's sermons verbatim for his own spiritual profit, end quote. The community of French refugees put up money to support him in this, so that he could devote himself fully to it. Parker describes Ragonaire's labors. Ragonaire had to be there in church with his pen and ink and paper, not only twice on Sunday, but also every morning of alternate weeks, at six o'clock in summer, seven in winter, taking down every word of Calvin's sermons, ranging from about 3,000 to above 6,000 words in length. He then had either to write them out in longhand himself or dictate them to another scribe, keep the sheets carefully in order until the series of sermons was completed, and then get that set bound and delivered to the safekeeping of the deacons. Ragonier died in 1560, but his work was continued by men trained by him. Parker comments on the accuracy of these transcriptions. Quote, that no little error should be made would be asking too much of men, writing shorthand with a quill and ink in an unheated church. Moreover, the transcripts were not checked by Calvin himself, but the errors are remarkably few, and are nearly always such as can be easily corrected by modern authors. Thus, the manuscripts can be taken as faithfully reproducing Calvin's own words. End quote. Calvin began his Deuteronomy series on the 20th of March, 1555 immediately after a long series on Job, which he began on the 26th of February, 1554. After Deuteronomy, he went on to Isaiah, July of 1556 to September of 1559. On Sundays, he was preaching 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, and then 1st Corinthians, while going through Deuteronomy on weekdays. The 15 sermons contained in the present volume were delivered while Calvin was in the middle chapters of 1st Corinthians on Sundays. It is helpful to take note of the historical context in which the Deuteronomy sermons were preached. Early in 1555 came the collapse of the so-called Libertine Party, a political faction that had opposed Calvin and the unfolding reformation of the Geneva Republic. 
These men, under the leader Ami Perrin, had harassed Calvin and the work of Reformation for a decade. After an election in February of 1555, Calvin's friends and followers found themselves in a majority in the Genevan government. Seeing that they were losing power, the Libertine Party assembled a mob in early May, but the government stood its ground in favor of Calvin's reforms. On May 16th, the leaders of the Libertine Party became involved in a scandalous public disturbance and fled the city. The Reformation had finally won peace in Geneva. All of this happened just as Calvin was beginning his series on Deuteronomy and sheds light on the freedom with which he makes application from the book. Calvin was enabled to make positive suggestions for the reform of Christian society in an atmosphere of encouragement and freedom that he had not previously known. As Farley puts it, quote, Throughout the series, Calvin never tires of stressing the importance of a God-fearing and well-ordered state, supported by a reasonable and decent citizenry, led by a pious and accountable magistracy. End quote. Transition The sermons on Deuteronomy were issued in an English translation by Arthur Golding in 1583, and reissued twice in the same year. The Golding translation has been reissued recently in its original typeface by the Banner of Truth Trust, 1987. While the complete Deuteronomy sermons have never been given a more modern translation, the sermons on the Ten Commandments were retranslated and published in 1980 by Benjamin W. Farley. The present effort is not a new translation from the French, desirable as such would be. I haven't the skill or training to do it, and the costs involved put such a project far out of reach for the present publisher. What I have done is modernize Golding's translation. This has involved the following. 1. I have translated older English words and phrases into modern English using the Oxford English Dictionary. 2. I have smoothed out Golding's prose in places where it seemed more tortured than necessary. 3. I have broken up some extremely long sentences. 4. I have added a great many paragraph divisions. Golding's version of Sermon 149 contains seven paragraphs. My version contains 45. Calvin did not speak in paragraphs, of course, so this is simply for the ease of the reader. 5. I have added titles to the sermons and subheads, neither of which came from Calvin or Golding. 6. I have placed scriptural references in parentheses. Most of these come from Golding's marginal notes, but some are my own. Almost all of these are editorial since Calvin seldom cited chapter and verse when he alluded to other portions of Scripture. 7. I have provided a few footnotes to explain obscure matters and to compare Calvin's remarks in these sermons with statements he makes elsewhere, particularly in his lectures on the five books of Moses. 8. At the same time, I have not taken the liberty of completely rephrasing Golding's prose, because I did not want to risk departing too far from Calvin's own style. Thus, the reader will find a certain archaic flavor, even in the present volume. Let me illustrate with a section from Sermon 157, one of my short paragraphs. Here is Golding's original, with spelling of obvious words modernized, but no changes in words and phrasings. Quote, now let us come to that which Moses saith farther. He saith that God will strike the despisers of his law with many diseases. He hath spoken heretofore of fevers and of the what hot disease, and of the yellow jaundice, and of such others, now he speaketh of the itch and the canker, and of other worms and scabs. 
where also mention is made of the hemorrhoids, as some do expound them, all these foresaid things be the weapons of God, to punish the offenders of the law. To be short, they be his men of war to encounter with us, when he seeth that we take heart of grace against him. And truly, when we favor our own lusts to violate his righteousness, and to break the order which he hath established among us, and when he seeth our lusts to be so inordinate which are thieves and robbers, he armeth his people, and substitutes which be the diseases that are here spoken of, and other sorts. End quote. Now here is my updated rendering. Quote, now let us come to what Moses says next, that God will strike the despisers of his law with many diseases. Verse 27. He has spoken earlier of fevers and of inflammations, and of the yellow jaundice, as well as of others. Now he speaks of the itch and canker, and other worms and scabs. Mention also is made of hemorrhoids, as some understand it. All these things are the weapons of God, to punish the offenders of his law. In brief, they are his men of war to fight against us, when he sees that we take courage against him. And indeed, when we favor our own lust to violate his righteousness, breaking the order he has established among us, and when he sees our lusts to be so inordinate as to be thieves and robbers, then he arms his people and substitutes, which are the diseases that are here spoken of, and other sorts as well. End quote. In this paragraph are two obscure older English phrases. The first is, what disease? A search in the Oxford English Dictionary led to hot disease and provided inflammation as a modern equivalent. The second is heart of grass. The Oxford English Dictionary states that heart of grace means courage, and to take up a heart of grace means to pluck up courage. Grass is an alternate spelling for grace, according to the Oxford English Dictionary. Finally, the last sentence in this paragraph is a bit obscure, so I added an explanatory footnote which reads, quote, That is, he arms his people, our enemies, to make war on us, or else he sends substitute warriors, diseases, end quote. In reading these sermons, I recommend bearing in mind that they were delivered orally. Calvin's spoken sentences are long, and they build phrase upon phrase. If you read them aloud, or listen silently instead of reading rapidly, you will find them easier to follow. Calvin and the Law In his publisher's preface to the present volume, Dr. Gary North addresses the question of whether or not John Calvin was a theonomist. As North recognizes, this is somewhat of an anachronistic question, but circumstances within the Calvinistic community today virtually force the question to be raised anyway. If we distinguish between a theoretical and strict theonomic viewpoint on the one hand, and more practical and loose theonomic viewpoint on the other, we might say that Calvin was not a capital T theonomist, but a lowercase t theonomist. That is, an examination of Calvin's theoretical writings on the judicial aspects of the Mosaic Law will reveal that he believed that they were given to Israel in a rather unique fashion and are not binding on modern civil governments. Yet, an examination of Calvin's practical writings and sermons, such as the sermons on Deuteronomy, will reveal that he used the Mosaic Law, including its judicial aspects, as the foundation for social, political, and legal wisdom, and generally favored imitating the Mosaic Law in the modern world. In viewing Calvin's thought in its own context, it would be better to view him in terms of the preceding thousand years of Corpus Christianum. In this model, the Church exists as an institution of worship 
and as a sanctuary in the center of society, while around her is gathered the body politic, headed by a devout ruler whose job is to guarantee Christian peace and to protect and support the church. In a rough way, we can say that the primary concern in this model is with the godly ruler rather than with the law of God in the abstract. The church labors to produce godly sons, who will be godly magistrates, whose minds will be informed with godly wisdom, and who will make proper applications of the fundamental principles of the Bible to their societies. After all, in the reforming city of Geneva, Calvin did not deliver 200 lectures on common grace or natural law, but preached 200 sermons on the book of Deuteronomy. He made full and direct applications from Deuteronomy into his modern situation without apology. He viewed biblical law as foundational and as the starting point for legal and socio-political reflection. The specific question before Calvin in Deuteronomy 27 and 28 is the question of God's providential manipulation of historical events to bring blessing and judgment upon his people. Many modern Calvinists hold that God does not make a visible distinction between righteous and wicked communities in history during the present age, though of course he will make a radical distinction in the world to come. The view often advocated or assumed today in reform circles is that a system of historical blessings and curses, prosperity and judgment, was a unique aspect of the covenants of the Old Testament, part of the teaching devices God was using at that time. Thus, Deuteronomy 28 has no practical relevance for us today, except to display how God feels about obedience and sin, and to give us a verbal picture of heaven and hell. This is not Calvin's own view, as the reader will see as he goes through the present volume. Calvin is sensitive to the fact that, in the New Covenant, believers are under a more mature system of rewards and punishments. Sometimes, God rewards believers with suffering in order to make them more righteous and to help them lay up treasures in heaven. Because of the great maturity of the church, God's blessings and judgments may be postponed longer or be slower in coming into play. Because of the completion of the canon of Scripture, we are here to live in terms of the Bible and rely less upon providential blessings and curses for indications of God's favor and displeasure. Calvin is sensitive to such considerations as these, but he does not throw out the baby with the bathwater. As a devotee of Augustine, Calvin reflects the classic discussion of rewards and chastisements found in Augustine's City of God, Book 1. Augustine writes, quote, For though, if obvious punishments should now be visited for every sin, it would be thought that nothing is reserved for the last judgment. Yet, on the other hand, if no sin were now plainly punished by divine action, men would believe that there is no such thing as divine providence. End quote. Thus Calvin states, quote, Now let us mark that just because the Holy Spirit spoke thus by the mouth of Moses, it was not his intention that this doctrine should serve only for two thousand years or thereabouts, which was the time the law lasted until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but that we at this day must apply the same to our own use. End quote. He concludes this section of his remarks, quote, Therefore, when we look at such a mirror, the history of the Jews, let us learn to make good use of it and let their example serve to seal this doctrine and to confirm it, so that we do not test God, and so that we not continue hard-hearted so long that he decides to wrap us up in reproach with all the rest of the nations of the world. End quote. A note on Calvin's pessimism. The reader of these sermons will no doubt be struck by the fact that, 
Despite the encouraging and optimistic tone of the biblical passage under consideration, Calvin manages to turn his remarks mostly to a discussion of suffering and affliction. Indeed, Calvin assures us that earthly prosperity is less in view in the New Covenant than in the Old, since the main purpose of earthly prosperity is to cause us to look beyond this world to the next. Consulting Calvin's remarks on Mark 10.30, which says that those who follow Christ will receive a hundredfold in this life with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life, we find that Calvin states that, quote, in the greater number of cases, those who have been deprived of their parents or children are so far from recovering their property that in exile, solitude, and desertion, they have a hard struggle with severe poverty. I reply, if any man estimate aright the immediate grace of God, by which he relieves the sorrows of his people, he will acknowledge that it is justly preferred to all the riches of the world. End quote. Later Reformed thought, seeking to be consistent with other more optimistic strains in Calvin's thought and in Holy Scripture, note that while individuals may not receive the precise promise of Mark 10.30, the church as a corporate body will someday inherit the earth. Moreover, the goal of redemption is not escape from this world, but the restoration of the cultural mandate originally given to Adam. Thus, earthly prosperity is not merely a type of the new heavens and earth, but a proper blessing in itself. There is no need to pit such things against each other. The reasons for Calvin's relative pessimism are not far to seek. First, at the time of the Reformation, so many pressing problems confronted the Reformers that they were unable to devote much systematic attention to the problems of prophecy and eschatology. Neither Luther nor Calvin took up an exposition of the Book of Revelation, for instance. Second, there was so much persecution of the true Orthodox faith in Calvin's day that it is easy to see why he focuses pastorally on this problem in his writings and sermons. Third, Calvin himself was much afflicted with illness of the body. The second generation of reformers was almost universally postmillennial, and this view was the standard Calvinistic view both on the continent and in Anglo-American cultures until the mid-19th century and later. Did this represent a departure from Calvin, or a development and fulfillment of the basic conceptions in his theology? At the very least, we have to say that there is an incipient postmillennialism in Calvin's thought, though there is also an incipient all-millennialism. Those wishing to investigate the matter will find Calvin speaking very optimistically about the earthly future of the church in his commentaries on Isaiah chapter 60 verse 4 and Psalm 110, verse 3, for instance. A reading of the prayers that conclude Calvin's lectures will also show this optimistic strand, such as the prayers which close the 61st lecture in Daniel and the 34th on Hosea. Calvin's outline of history is found in his comments on 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3-4. First, the gospel is preached to all nations. Then there is an apostasy resulting in the rise of the papacy the papacy will be beaten back by the preached word, verse 8. The underlying principle of Antichrist will finally be destroyed at the coming of Christ. Thus, while Calvin's pastoral application of the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy 27 and 28 often focuses most heavily on the blessings of the world to come, there is also abundant evidence of his thinking of a positive appreciation of external cultural blessings in this life as well, such as peace and prosperity.